Welcome to Film Trace. This is a podcast where we trace the life of a film from conception to production, all the way to release and reception. Chris, you're going to have to introduce this film because ah. it is starting with a lot of baggage that uh, I want you to hold as we start this show. Um, I <laughs> shall hold it the best I can. <laughs> Y'all, I thought for whatever reason, it might be a good idea to take a look at the Home Alone reboot for our uh, kind of Christmas-themed episode. Yeah. yeah. Uh, this, this year, we did uh, do... Um, Rare Exports, A Christmas Tale last year, which is one of my favorite um, Christmas movies. Um, and I, that was a great talk. And I'm glad that I could turn you on to that movie. Dan, you were a fan, right? I loved it. Yeah, it was a really good Yeah. Um, but this one was a mistake. So, Well, I mean, maybe for you. I don't know about me yet. What? Yeah, that's true. That's true. I, sh- I should not assume. Um, we are talking about Home Sweet Home Alone. Uh, the Dan Mazur directed Mikey Day and Streeter Seidel written uh, attempt at bringing back the franchise of your uh, our nostalgic youth in the 90s, of course. Uh, and then it kind of sputtered along to a non Culkin sequel and uh, even further straight to video nonsense. But it's also kind of our first, uh, not kind of, I think it is our first family friendly uh, film Thanks. to cover on the show. I think you're right. I think this is the first really, truly family film. Yes, and uh, also our first Disney Plus release. Well, it's kind of a crazy, it's a weird film because it's technically the first 20th Century Studios film mm-hmm. to be produced for Disney Plus. So obviously, Disney bought uh, 21st Century Fox, when was this, a couple, last year, a couple years ago? Mm-hmm. So they inherited the rights to Home Alone, uh, and so they decided, hey, let's make a direct-to-streaming is this the what the sixth movie? That is correct. Yes. How are there six? First of all, first of all, uh, I haven't seen anyone since the second one. You have kids. I imagine maybe your kids have seen the other ones. <laughs> yes, I have seen the third one a couple times, regrettably. Um, I have seen bits and pieces of the fourth and fifth ones, um, but uh, I have not really forced myself to sit down and watch one um until this new one so i i will say yes i've got two sons six and nine years old yeah. uh the six-year-old's favorite is home alone 3 which is actually amazing factoid for film nerds yeah. home alone 3 is roger ebert's favorite home alone film wow. <laughs> and uh my nine-year-old's favorite one is uh whatever one's called holiday heist i believe that's the fifth one what's going on over there man um do they like the first one yeah oh yeah and we like that's a that's a regular family fun one like it is kind of weird like you know some of the things that uh are kind of questionable uh 30 years later um we had to have a long conversation about what gangster movies were right because oh <laughs> that was not a reference point for them at all yeah. uh because kids don't like just like flip through and see old movie channels you know like they used to yeah it's like black uh, and white to like pass hard pass yeah exactly um and the second one which is my i know controversial my personal favorite uh you're a huge trumper right that's <laughs> yeah exactly and actually that's it's funny you say that because that's one of the reasons my nine-year-old uh does not like to watch it because he does not like having to see that man's face yeah um <laughs> monster not that we're political or anything on this show no no no, no. but tim curry is a delight in He's home one, alone too yeah. i mean home alone too is you know 
it's one of those sequels that kind of works. Yeah, yeah. One of the few, especially children's sequels, which are even tougher, I think, to tougher nut to crack than, um, you know, more mature fare. But I do think that uh, we need to dive in to, you know, um, what where we were coming from, because I'm oh, coming yeah. from a dad's perspective, classic dad status. Yeah, I wanted to kind of kill. Yeah, I wanted to kill two birds with one stone because like my kids have been hyped for a new Home Alone movie for over a year. This uh, entry in the franchise was filmed right before the pandemic began, like so many um, newer releases that we've covered on the program. Um, but it was basically shelved uh, and, you know, rolled out, like you said, uh, right here on Disney Plus through the 20th Century Studios um, banner. And you, Dan, are coming at it from, I think, somebody so that like enjoyed it as... Dude, right? <laughs> What what was, yeah, Tell walk me through your experience, A, finding out that I was choosing this movie for this episode, and B, having to actually follow through and watch it by your uh, lonesome. So here's the deal, yeah, um, when I saw it on the list, I thought it was like an indie film. (laughs) I thought it was some like A24 thing that played at Sundance and would, you know, have some controversial topic to it, and I'd probably cry. Uh, but no, as you sort of, I think you mentioned, it's like, oh no, it's a new Home Alone movie. And I was like, what are you talking about? It's like Home Sweet Home Alone. I was like, oh, that's what it is. So I was not happy about that. Um, and then, you know, I haven't seen Home Alone in a long time. Uh, I loved it when it came out. I was like, what, about eight years old when it came out in 1990. So it was a pivotal film of my youth. Like a lot of people our age, like it was just like a huge milestone seeing that movie. It was a massive film back then, a huge hit. Uh, and you know, plays on the TV pretty much every Christmas season. Uh, but I did, I think I watched it in the last year or so. And I was like, Oh wow, this like really holds up. Well, it does. It's well-written, very well-paced, like all like those very like meat and potatoes parts of making a movie. It just like works so well. Uh, yeah, there's parts of it that it's sort of lag, whatever, but it's one of those, it's one of those films where people have a lot of nostalgia for and cherish and deservedly so. It's not just something from the past that people like because it's old and they, they saw it when they were a kid. It really is a good film. Um, so going into it, I was like, okay, there's there's no way it's going to live up to the original. It's not really possible. Um, and I decided and made the mistake of reading some reviews, or not even reviews, sort of like essays before I dove into this. And one of the first essays I read was this uh, article in Paste Magazine, uh, which is sort of, what would you call Paste Magazine? It's like an Americana indie yeah, yeah. yeah something like that uh they have like bluegrass in there too so it's a little bit like that too uh they mix it up a bit um they wrote an essay about this film and they basically gutted the film the entire time like eviscerated it and i, I at first i was like yeah yeah let's take this film down a, a peg <laughs> right let's let's disney let's just rip it to shreds how dare they uh but then i started to watch the film and what I was seeing on screen and what I was hearing from critics and stuff did not align at all. Uh, mm. I was just like very confused. It's just sort of the vitriol of the negative reaction to this movie uh, because I don't really think it really elicits a lot, let alone like this like deep hatred. Yeah. Uh, so that's something I think we want to discuss here a little bit, like how that how we'll probably get to that a little bit later. But that's where I was coming from. I was and as I watched it, I was sort of like coming through that that prism of like extreme negativity uh i don't even know what the like the rotten tomato score was like 17 percent something terrible 
Yeah. Um, but I was kind of, I wasn't like pleasantly surprised that it was good. I was like kind of surprised that it was fine. <laughs> and the reaction was extremely negative. Like, I'm not even talking about like, oh, it's bad. Why would you remake this? It's like people are like out for this, this movie's life. Yeah. Uh, which I find way more interesting than the film itself, to be honest. <laughs> with you. Uh, before I get to that, let's talk about what's this thing about? I think that's one of the big sticking points is one of the basic plot points. So let's start there. Right. Uh, yeah. The, your logline is arguably confusing. <laughs> it's super confusing. Max- I got on IMDb. <laughs> Thanks, IMDb, you losers. Right. <laughs> User generated content's terrible. <laughs> there, but even like the actual like press release stuff is still just like, wait, what? Yeah. Um okay, see if you can follow us, guys. Max Mercer, a mischievous and resource- resourceful young boy, has been left behind while his family is in Japan for the holidays. Okay, we're with you so far, right? It sort that- of it sort of makes sense. Why Japan? I mean, okay, sure. Whatever. Yeah, I know, yeah. Uh next, here's where it gets tricky. So when a married couple attempting to retrieve a priceless heirloom sets their sights on the Mercer family's home, it's up to Max to protect it from the trespassers, and he will do whatever it takes to keep them out. Okay, so first of all, there's just like a straight up falsity in that sentence, right? What's the false part of that? Max doesn't know, doesn't, he doesn't have, spoiler alert, he does not have the heirloom, and he is not attempting to protect it. That's dramatic irony, isn't it? Right. Yes, but but we don't. No, it's is that situational irony because no, because we are, we, we know wait, we don't know because we don't know that he doesn't know. Right. That we yeah. see a bulge in the jacket. Oh, because which, yeah. Okay. Which makes <laughs> the, situational the, irony. It's not dramatic irony. We would yeah, have yeah. to know that he didn't have it. Right. <laughs> which yeah. Uh, whatever. Last piece of it. Um, <laughs> the reboot promises hilarious hijinks of epic proportions, and despite the absolute chaos, Max eventually comes to realize that there really is no place like home, sweet home. Again, does he? Yeah, that doesn't really happen. <laughs> no. no. Like you said, one of the the aspects of the original film that is really like uh, meat and potatoes, like you said, is like all the like puzzle pieces narratively fit together seamlessly like really well it it sets up a really simple but like they do it in such a way that it's still just like ultimately cathartic and satisfying yes kevin understands the importance of family and it somehow comes across as wholesome rather than corny maybe a little bit of corniness but like you know it's a kid's film it's a chris columbus picture (laughs) um written by john hughes written by john hughes um but I don't. I, I, I'm with you on the 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 vitriol. I'm not trying to go there, Dan. But I, I'm I'm so confused about this. <laughs> well, I, I think you have to start. It's it's problematic from the start. I think you like <laughs> if you dive into the conception of this, like you're thinking about uh, Dan Mazer, the director. You think about Mikey Day um, and uh, is it Seidel? Yeah, mm-hmm. we are both SNL people, right? And so. It, it there's this weird sort of the big decision as to why would you make so the protagonist is Max, but no. he's a, so okay. So the protagonist <laughs> is the parents, yeah, but not well, Max's uh, parents, but not Max's parents. So the okay, <laughs> wait a second. So that's already a switch, right? So the protagonist is now the people, the home invaders, right? Right. What were they called? The the wet bandits. 
in the original. Sorry. Right. And then sticky bandits. Yeah. So it, it's sort of reversing that. And that's kind of the whole conception that they wanted to play with. Essentially. It was like, Hey, what if we decided to make this movie from their perspective, the immediate problem that pops into my head. And this would happen if we had a pitch meeting and <laughs> it were two, 30 seconds in. Yeah. I would be like, you can't do that because they're the antagonist. You can't make the antagonist, the protagonist. I mean, like, you could in like a postmodern way, but you'd have to make a very, very dark adult film. Right. Right. Because if you think about like if you think about like the wet bandits and what they do in their free time, there's like some uh, you know, just really illicit things happening. And they're not good people. Uh and like, but like they're trying to make this switcheroo in a children's film. I mean, what do you make of that decision? I mean, my my own sons were immediately confused also you know (laughs) before the first act even wraps up they're like so wait like jeff and pam are the 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 parents in question of a different family yeah family the ones that think that young max played by archie yates from jojo rabbit yeah they believe he has their heirloom they believe that this kid uh stole it from them during a open house yeah and like the only reason my kids know what an open house is is because we moved recently. Yeah. And, but then like already there's this question of not only as you said, who are we identifying with? Yeah. Because like especially for a children's film, you we want to gravitate towards the child. Yeah, always. Right? Ra- especially rather than the two Because you uh, can't I mean, that's I mean, I would argue that it's not a children's film. Yeah, uh, right? Unless the child is the protagonist that's not a children's film. So what right. is, this? What is it, this it's in it's in this gray area and the other thing that made it uh kind of um just like feel like something it would like kind of felt intangible like there's not really anything to latch on to yeah. is because um Jeff and Pam played by Rob Delaney and Ellie Kemper who do I would say an admirable job trying yeah. to bring these characters to life they swing away um, yeah, yeah. They they're capable, they're competent, yeah. um, but they seem to like not really have much like evidence or reason or really even like um, motivation um, beyond just this kind of generic shroud of maybe we have to move. Um, there's an interesting, not interesting. There is a telling <laughs> uh, interview with Rob Delaney where there was like also some uh his screen rant did it during the it was an onset visit and yeah. there was seemingly already confusion on set the uh interviewer <laughs> talked about how like the production designer and uh the actors were having a conversation about you know who was middle class versus upper middle class versus lower. Like there's so much questions of class, like who is actually like down in the dumps, if anybody in this film, <laughs> right? It's like upstairs. I mean, yeah, it's not like yeah. uh, East Enders or something like it's no, not. No, no, no. Yeah. Like everybody's doing fine. Right. <laughs> yeah. Like the, the protagonist couple, uh, I'm just gonna call them Ellie and Rob. Cause that's how I know them. Sure. Um, they're not that, yeah, they're fine right they're not like right. uh, here's the thing about this so like the impetus the main action of this movie is that they want to protect their own children's 
childhood home, but more like their childhood they're trying to protect, uh, which I get, but is a very nebulous motive. Because they're already, because it's already splitting time with Max's character, right? Yeah. And so you're, you're both dividing the screen time and like they know, I mean, Disney and 20th century is not trying to like make a three hour epic. Right. So like, like like traffic for children. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Deep dive ensemble picture. Um, So it just feels, I mean, I think that's the thing and yeah. Uh, Should it inspire vitriol? I don't think so, but it definitely just feels limp. I think some of the vitriol is because people are confused about the basic motives. Because, like, there's a lot of people, and I saw this over and over again, where, like, the movie uh, is kind of cruel. Um, There's, like, it just has, like, a bad mood. Like, everybody treats each other poorly. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. yeah, but I think you're missing the point that, like, these two protagonists, the main characters, want to save their house by selling this uh, deformed doll. Which even there, you're just like, how would that get through anybody? Any executive reads this and like, how do you? you yeah, know, and they they already see an exact version of this deformed doll that they have up on eBay. So like, if that that doll's already on eBay, putting a second one up there isn't going to get them a buyer. I don't know, whatever. It's, it's very loose. It's um, not. It we didn't do a lot of thinking through. Which, no, which is I I kind of think that. Because you think about the guys who wrote it, like um, uh, Mikey Day and mm-hmm. Shudder Seidel, who were, you know, are still, are they still technically writers in SNL? Mikey Day, like, performs constantly. Yeah, he he was recently promoted to repertory, so I don't know if he writes. He writes anymore. Well, they wrote some great much. skits together. They wrote, like, that yeah. Clifton Connors one with Kate McKinnon. Mm-hmm. Um, what else did they write? Something other amazing. Oh, they, uh, David S. Pumpkins. They yeah. wrote that together. So they're a writing team. They've been writing together for a long time. Um, but you know, I'm thinking about it now and it does kind of have like a weird SNL skit thing to it. Like, it's just sort of like a very kind of one-off kind of mm-hmm. dumb premise. Written that, on a like, deadline. Even on a deadline, yeah. But like, <laughs> in like never, uh, it's mind blowing that nobody within an organization like Disney or 20th Century Fox, like there was no ghostwriter involved or executive right. writer that was sort of like, Hey guys, this is not a real motive. Like this mm-hmm. is not a real action that's taking place. Like, what are you doing? And then the other thing too, I mean, not to pile on this part of it, but I mean, this is in every review that talks about this and everybody that talks about it. It's like a big contentious point in the film. We don't learn anything that much about Max. <laughs> Like he's like this sort of like is he the antagonist here? Because he kind of seems like he is, but he's not because he's just protecting his own house. And, and he doesn't actually like, what the right. He didn't kid? actually steal anything. No, he didn't do anything wrong. He's <laughs> right. kind of a jerk, but he's a little kid and he's British. I kind of expect that, you know. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, I don't know. I mean, it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, if you can. Here's the thing: I got over that pretty quickly. Because I don't take this movie seriously. It's not sure. a serious sure. film. Yeah. And so you just you get over it. You're like, whatever. Uh, and then it kind of, you know, it becomes a, f- a fun film-ish. Um, what do you think about the humor? A lot of people attack the humor in this movie. I don't... Yeah. I didn't really have as much a problem with that. Like, I, I enjoyed the, you know, more grown-up friendly cameos from yeah. people like Jim Rash and uh, Keenan Thompson. Yeah. yeah. So, like... And like I said, even the, even the leads, they're 
absolutely, you know, uh, a seemingly assured in their role. Like they're not taking it seriously, but also they're giving it their all. And like, if you took it as an assemblage of scenes, like I do think there's some both, uh, you know, tried and true spirit uh, that complements the franchise and also some like unique, fresh, um, you know, twists on the genre. It's just so, it's just too bad that it was kind of just put in a blender. Cause I do think that, you know, hinging on a couple different points, one, Max not being number uh, as much of a character, and two, um, the adult characters getting so much of point of view. I don't know how much our family, with two small children even, is going to go back and revisit this. Like, yeah, I mean, this. It feels like a streaming movie. Streaming. Mm-hmm. Oh, what's the term we want to use these days? Streaming first. <laughs> yeah, uh, I don't. I don't really know what we want to call it. it. There is, and I think we go back to the writing. Like, there's just a lack of polish to this thing. Yes, and, and people brought up like the lighting. I remember that I wrote some notes when I was watching it. I was like, the lighting in this interior. I'm not an expert in lighting. I don't think about lighting. But I can tell when it's bad. Yes, <laughs> right. Like the interior lighting in one of the first scenes. I was like, this is terrible. Like, it just looks off. It looks rushed. So I do wonder, I, I don't, did you find any budget information? I couldn't find anything on a budget. There's nothing. And, yeah. you know, it It definitely seems like one of those things that, um, for Disney at least, maybe it was a blessing in disguise to, you know, have to put this on the shelf for a while due to COVID. Because I don't. I think I felt like this was going to be something that was going to be hyped and like front and center. I I don't know about you, but when I opened my Disney Plus, uh, I had to like do a search for it on its op- like the first day it was released. Like it's not being promoted. It's arguably even really kind of being just buried, which makes it feel like more of a in the line of um, the straight to video sequels of the franchise like how how much are we really trying to reboot this or is this just content wars personified i feel like it's a little bit of both like it it doesn't happen unless it has the home alone name attached to it right it's not just like you could come up with a concept like this and they're gonna be like whatever (laughs) right uh although i saw i wouldn't put it past on that to be honest with you like i was watching um uh, another holiday movie this is on netflix uh, um a holiday one called love hard and um again it's one of those kind of throwaway streaming movies i enjoyed it it was fun but you know i would give it if i was rating it at cinema maybe like a 30 out of 100 um it's not like a good movie <laughs> but like it's an enjoyable kind of comfort watch that's kind yeah. of what i thought this was too and i, I thought it was a comfort watch because if you remove the nostalgia for home alone almost completely and you just kind of enjoy it, kind of view it on its own terms. I think it's a lot more enjoyable. So in that sense, I think it's just basically they're shoveling content down our throats. Yeah, yeah. Um, they want eyeballs. You know, Disney too. You think about it, like they just had a really bad um, kind of financial report that they're not growing as quickly as they wanted to on subscribers from Disney Plus. So yeah, it, it, I think this is only going to intensify, and in that they just need essentially netflix disney plus all of these streaming services are all about you know acquiring customers and reducing churn so they think that the way to do that is by just like giving people a ton of content uh which i don't think is probably the the right thing to do but um 
yeah, I think the home sweet home alone feels like, Hey, let's just, let's give these people. Here's the thing though. You think about it. It's like Mikey day, uh, Seidel Mazers, I think is the real wild card here because yeah. if we look at his sort of history, um, you know, Sasha Baron Cohen, he's basically his writing partner, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Ali G, Barat Bruno, he wrote all those films. A new uh, Barat movie, going 2020, which I thought was pretty good. Um, I loved it. Yeah, yeah, that was fine. Uh, what did he direct? He directed Dirty oh, Grandpa. Oh, which is, I mean, have you seen that? No, I would never. <laughs> you, if you paid me twenty dollars, I would not see it. Uh, it looks unwatchable. Um, he also wrote um office christmas party which i literally just finished my second rewatch of i've watched it when it came out i just watched it tonight too <laughs> uh which is bizarre because i didn't know that he wrote that um to me that uh, looking at this if you put it down on paper and said hey we got these writers we got this cast to be like oh let's do this now right right but then you get the the if i saw the director i'd be like i don't know just because like he doesn't have a great track record obviously he's not super experienced in the directing um but like as a writer yeah he's super solid i would say well i wouldn't say super solid pretty solid but Uh, what he's working with with colin right so like that how much of it is that kind of synergy between him and the writing partner cohen has been has like proved himself as a solo uh writer but this guy just hasn't yet, right? Yeah. But so also, like, well, Dirty Grandpa made over a hundred hundred million dollars. Um, What's wrong? On a, What's wrong? On, a, <laughs> on an eleven million dollar budget. So, like, I don't know. He's yes, I think it's not a sure bet. Um, but it does it does seem like one of those things by just looking at the names and history of people involved, both in front of and behind the camera you think that this would be a no brainer. And for me, it was when I, you know, saw the news on deadline when way back when uh, it seemed like, okay, they were like actually going to revive this. They're not just going to like have it keep sputtering along. And like, I will actually have a reason kind of like, I felt like I had a reason. I don't, it's maybe it seems silly to equate these, but like to go and see the force awakens with my sons. Yeah. But there's, there's, it, it seems like a, Maybe that was in the plans at some point early on in negotiations, pre-production. But then, I mean, I think, tell me what you think, at some point, whether it was before or during the pandemic, they just kind of realized that they had a stinker and just needed to get it to the finish line. I, that, that just seems, that's probably the case, right? Yeah. They they like the concept. They liked everything. Everything sort of aligned to really give it, I don't know, probably like $20 million budget somewhere in that 20 to 30. It's a fair I guess, guess I think. Yeah. Uh, it's not, it's definitely not micro budget. Um, yeah. And I think that ultimately, you know, you, again, I, we were, it, this is funny cause we were just watching this, uh, this Netflix movie, love hard. And we, me and my good friend Pippa were talking about it. We're like, there's, there's this sort of style to Netflix streaming only streaming first films where they're missing all of these elements that you would get say from like a Sony movie or a Warner brothers film that plays in the big theater. And I think like they approach this film as a streaming first film. Yeah. And it just throughout the entire thing, it just feels shoddy. 
And it's not just the writing. It's a lot of the production stuff. Um, ultimately, I don't even know if they thought it was a stinker. I think they got exactly what they wanted, mm. which is a sort of like, hey, it's middle of the road. We don't really care if people like it or not. It's about eyeballs, right? Like as long as, I don't know, 20 million people watch it, we think like it's paid for itself. Uh, it's just a very different business model than you have from a, a, a theatrical film. Not to say it's better or worse. Like streaming films can be fantastic. Um, but, you know, there's, and I think too, uh, I'll go to like, uh, have you seen Red Notice yet on Netflix? No, I don't have much of any interest. Um, another streaming first film, uh, sure. but a massive budget, $200 million, maybe 250 I hear. You know, you have The Rock. Um, uh, who else is there? Uh, Gal- Ryan Reynolds. Yeah. Uh, and Wonder Woman, what's your name? Gal Gadot. Gal Gadot, Gadot yeah. Um, and you have a very similar reaction. So I watched that movie. I was down in Florida visiting my uncle. We watched it together. He's not a big movie guy. Uh, but he's, he, he didn't fall asleep, which is a huge sign of <laughs> approval. Uh, to the film, he's like, oh, you know, it, it was bad, but it, like, it held your attention, which is yeah. the entire point, right? Um, but with that movie too, there's what's interesting about that film is that it felt like a theatrical film. Like you could have put that on yeah. the big screen and it wasn't the big screen for like a week or something. Uh, I forget. I think Cinemark did a partnership with Netflix to do it. And it felt like a big theatrical movie. Even when you watch it on Netflix, this one did not have that at all. Right. And I think where, where people really get pissed off about it is when you go back to home alone and you think about that, that feels like a theatrical film. And it's like these little tiny details, not just the writing, but the production design, the editing, the mute. You know, one of the things too, like, uh, like it just felt like, do you kind of see that streaming house style that they do? Totally. Yeah. What is it? Like, what is it? Do you think someone did a really lengthy ex- explanation of this on Reddit? I forget where it was, but it was a really fascinating one about how they light it specifically. It's so different. Yeah, it it really feels. Um, I mean, there. It, I don't know. There's like a distinct feeling of like almost. Yeah, like halfway between a TV show and like a variety special. <laughs> like it doesn't. It feels like it's stuck in this netherworld, as if to say, like we this is a special thing that you should not call a movie or a tv show right yeah. um it's like no man's land yeah and i think there like there's the high-end version of that too with disney plus like i think there is a weird uh no man's land that's happening with like the mcu shows and well, Mandalorian. I, I, I totally disagree i'm gonna really agree with you so i've watched uh i just watched wandavision and loki and Loki specifically, Loki to me has, okay, the writing's not great. I'll give you that. But <laughs> the production design on Loki is next level. I think it's better than any movie I've seen in like the last five years. Really? Like it's just gorgeous and like in depth. There's like a richness to like the imagination going into the world that they're building. Whereas here, I mean, it's a little bit hard because, you know, this is like real world versus sort of a made up world. Um, whereas here it, it just feels like, it feels like they're not even trying. 
or like they don't know who to work with to do that. I don't know. What do you? Th- I mean, what is it? What is it to well, you? I'm, I'm guess what I'm saying is like, uh, and this is you know maybe a symptom of a of a larger kind of uh, evolution, or in some people's minds, a de evolution of like cinematic aesthetic in general, right? Where it's like you've get. I agree. Like they're doing things with the MCU shows that are next level in many like creative ways, but ultimately, and this has been kind of the, you know, MCU backlash overall with the movies as well, where it's like, so like, uh, blandly colored, right. Um, this has been leveled right at like Eternals most recently, um, and Shang-Chi where it's like, you have such a heavily artificial world and then like flattened, with like shadow and uh you know synthetic um backdrops like i mean i think it was you that told me that like they literally film loki in an abandoned mall right yeah yeah right by it like the human actors are the only actual element to it and so i for me the connection is like home sweet home alone and you know a lot of the other direct that kind of dates back all the way back to the disney channel right sure yeah where it's like they it's very clear like um i'm trying to think of maybe a nostalgic uh reference point that would work for both of us i don't know if you did you have the disney channel growing up did have the disney channel okay so like you remember like like the 90s version of mickey mouse club absolutely or like even on like Nickelodeon, you can't do that on television. Yeah. Like that kind of style where it's like, it's so obviously a set, right? Yeah. And it feels not just artificial in, in the sense of like, and not like artistically a set, like dog. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, we're not, ta- we're not, this is not a stage production, <laughs> but, but it's, it's very much like, Let's let's throw it together and then light it so that people don't realize that we've switched from an exterior to a soundstage. Yeah, I, the bigger question there to me is that like the money hasn't changed, right? right? Like, yeah, there's no way they shot this for less than twenty million dollars. Like, I just I couldn't believe it if they did. Like, because of the people involved and that kind of stuff, and it's Disney and it's Home Alone. It, it's almost like they're getting way less bang for their buck. I mean part of the whole content wars thing is that like it's a it's a seller's market so if you're a director if you're in tech if you're like they want you constantly and like you know you a 20 million dollar movie now isn't what a 20 million dollar was five years ago mm-hmm. not just because inflation either uh because there's just you know there's a insane demand to create stuff um and there's diminishing returns you know, I think this movie, I, this movie could have worked in a lot of different ways, but it does to me. And like some people would say, oh, it's just psychological, right? Like you're just watching it on a TV. You're not watching a big movie, if you, a movie theater. If you watch the movie theater, uh, it would feel totally different. Well, I can give you the exact example of this would be Dune. Like I watched yeah. Dune in the movie theater. It was mind blowing. Uh, and I watched it again with my uncle in like a, like a, you know, like maybe a 50 inch TV that like was insanely loud and had terrible sound and it was still breathtaking. Uh, so I, I just don't buy that. It's like some sort of psychological thing that we're watching it on a smaller screen. It's like changing our perspective that much, right? Like what's on the screen. It matters. I think a lot more than the screen that you're watching it on. 
Yeah, it uh, would have been interesting. <laughs> right, right. It would have been interesting to see, like, if uh, what well, D- Dirty Grandpa was what, like, 2016? 2016, yeah. Right? And so we weren't quite at the place where we would have things like Red Notice, right? Like, yeah. streaming first movies that had A-list stars. Um, you know, Zac Efron and uh, Robert De Niro are in Dirty Grandpa, right? Yeah. But still, like, the, the affect... And like the just like legit trash level quality of that kind of production could have easily fit at home on a small screen and still gotten plenty of eyeballs just for the sheer fact that it's like Robert De Niro doing gross stuff and Zach Efron reacting to it, right? Yeah. There's, there's no cinematic quality there. No, because the the it's a it's like a joke delivery system. Yeah, yeah. It's like it's like it's there to get you to sort of think about like when I, I just watch office Christmas party, I laughed a ton because I don't need to see it in a theater. There's no cinematic elements like you said to it whatsoever. It's just sort of like joke, 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 comedic situation. It's no different than watching SNL. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I think the where maybe we can like start talk about like the reaction to this movie, sure. which has been super negative. I think the problem here is that like, and one of the reasons why there's such this friction between reviewers and people who watched it and their expectations and what they wanted out of it is that difference. Because when you watch Home Alone, it does feel big, despite it being a pretty small story. Yeah. And it feels there's just something about um, a movie production, um, let's say pre-2015. And it's still the case for movies that come out now that are bigger, but like without a doubt, if you saw a movie in the theater pre 2015 or even let's say pre 2010, it has a certain level of weight to it. Um, And I don't think that is made up. Like, I think it's actually like production techniques and writing and the actual technical craft of making a film. It was just better Uh, Mm -hmm. or it was more professional or it was deeper in some level um, than this film. And I think that, like, that's what's causing the rift. It isn't that this film is like that bad. It's that it's this style of film trying to compare it to something like Home Alone, which is almost like a different medium at this point. Uh, I mean, like, look at like what's the Rotten Tomato score on this thing? I mean, it's ridiculous. It's it's horrendous. Yeah. So we look at um, uh, all critics, eighteen percent, audience, thirteen percent, compared to it's arguably. It is somehow better on Letterbox with a thirty. <laughs> well, that's I mean, but Letterbox is kind of skewed a little bit. Like that, I think thirty is actually the lowest score I've ever seen. Oh, okay. Because like you, it's yeah, almost yeah. like it's like it's it's like Pitchfork where everything's a seven. Yeah, you know? gotcha, gotcha. Um, IMDb thirty five, Metacritic audience thirty two, um, Metacritic critics thirty five. Like it's we're we're right down there with the lowest of the low. Google rating is a little higher with 43%. That's super bad. Like that's Yeah, super bad. it's still like yeah, to to not get to not at least crack a 50 with just like a generic Google rating um from like literally the simplest um collection of people that, you know, click on stars and stuff on their web browser uh is pretty pretty rough. You're you're angering a lot of people if you're managing to get that kind of um, reaction. And I mean, to, to kind of just like tie that into one of the main uh, points about like um, 
cinematic quality. Maybe one thing that we're missing in this conversation is like comparing it to other specifically like children's oriented family films. Yeah. Right. Um, the first thing that comes to my mind uh, as we get into this discussion of like, when does it, when is it necessary to like actually like put some elbow grease into a production so that it can actually have some st- have some legs legacy wise, but also like at least get onto the screen and feel like it belongs up on the big screen. Um, I mean, the Tom and Jerry movie from earlier this year, uh, looking at it in comparison, you have uh, once again, just like the worst possible Hmm. scores, Um, (laughs) but still at least um, a distinct um, development. division between what the critics said which was horrible um 31 percent uh on the tomato meter and 22 percent on metacritic still better than home alone or sweet home sweet home alone but the audience score uh 82 percent for tom and jerry uh so like like, well that, that was a really surprisingly did well at the box office Right. And so, and that, and that was one of the, you know, same day HBO Max releases. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, like, but also I watched that with my kids, completely disposable. Um, I, I, I laughed less as a parent. And like, (laughs) what are the, are there children going on Rotten Tomatoes now? Like, what is, what is the distinction you think between something like that, which once again, beloved IP brought back, but beloved but i feel like tom and jerry i'm not like a tom and jerry expert by any stretch of imagination (laughs) i feel like it's more pervasive and expansive of an ip Hmm. whereas like this is like very specific and like i feel like okay so the last two home alone movies i didn't even know they existed yeah uh i feel like people just let's talk about like who is rating this on rotten tomatoes right it's people over 25 years old probably (laughs) like do, do like zoomers go on rotten tomatoes and care i don't think they care that rotten tomatoes even exist they don't seem like the type of people that are going to like dive into the critical reception of a movie right um right. not to be insulting or anything. they're just they're gone um uh so yeah it's older people i think that are rating it so harshly and i think when i read these some of these essays and watched some youtube videos there's like multiple youtube videos like just look up home sweet home alone on YouTube, which I like, I'm constantly on YouTube. So this is all I do in my life. Uh, <laughs> there's like video essays about how terrible this movie is. And I think this brings up a much larger point about like criticism, film criticism in general on YouTube, which is very popular and very prevalent. Um, how they view movies like this and how it changes public opinion or does it. And especially on social media platforms and how do we get to a 13% for a movie like this? Because like, there's no way this is a 13%, right? It just doesn't make any sense. Like it's, I would put it at like maybe a 40 or 50. Like it's not a good movie, um, but it's not some like war crime. You know what I mean? (laughs) Like I, I feel like there's this weird feedback loop where if like a few people, like put up stuff it's kind of the the whole um you know one of the problems with social media in general all it takes is a few people to really speak loudly especially with hatred and then it just like it's a feedback loop mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so it's like i don't think you could see this movie without already hating it first based on the social media like deluge that comes at you about it and i think people view it through that lens 
And so like that's why people hate this movie so much is because they were essentially told to hate it by the the group. I don't know. That's just the theory I'm throwing out. I don't know. What do you think about that? I think that's fair. I think that they're that I think that even happens within critic circles too, right? 100%. Yeah. So like if if it would happen in that microcosm, would it why would it not happen with the you know, less educated and more just like looking for instant gratification crowd that is, you know, actually doing the actually paying for the subscriptions to these streaming services, right? Yeah. Um uh speaking well okay, so speaking of the critics, uh there yeah, like the, it was across the board just really bad, but there are a couple uh, you know, voices that leapt out uh from the crowd. Uh Benjamin Lee of the Guardian said that it was a surprisingly entertaining if wholly unnecessary sequel. <laughs> uh a tangerine where actually. we expected to find a lump of coal. <laughs> Um, that's the, that's a little too sugary for me. Yeah. He, I mean, he just liked it cause there was a Brit, uh, as <laughs> yeah, the exactly. center. <laughs> yeah. The whole, it's a British film technically. I mean, yeah. Look at it, like it's, yeah. So yeah. Uh, filmed in Montreal, but yeah, the it's, uh, and Rob Delaney lives in Britain and lives yeah. in Britain. Yeah. And then the, what's her name? Ashling B. The mother right. of Max right. is, uh, Irish. She got in trouble. Did you see that? No, what happened? So she's Irish and she spoke in her British accent, and like some like Irish paper got all over about it because they're like, <laughs> apparently like the IRA is researching. I don't know what's going on over there. Oh my gosh! Take care of her IRA. No, yeah, I didn't exactly. say that. <laughs> <laughs> Jay, Jake real Wilson. political. <laughs> Jake Wilson of the Age in Australia to keep going with the British countries or formerly British countries. Uh, this is less an actual movie than a lazy approximation, half-heartedly monkeying with formula while showing no understanding of why that formula ever worked at all. I, I, um, yeah, I thought that that was like that was kind of a softer one. Yeah, but right. I think that's that's the that's one of the more reasonable um, takedowns yeah. because it, it's just it, it's hard to I I would be hard pressed to even like sit Mikey Day down and be like, can you you know have a rebuttal to the statement and be like, no man, just did it for the money. Right? Yeah, <laughs> like, because SNL doesn't pay me anything, probably. <laughs> exactly right, and it probably took him a week to put together with his friend. Yeah. Um, Courtney Howard of Variety is one of the more straight ahead just absolutely hate it kind of a critic mean-spirited downright sloppy and awkwardly unfunny this rote feature reboot lacks holiday cheer i don't know yeah so I, like i don't keep in mind variety gets their variety and hollywood reporter usually get the reviews up first right because yep. they're the industry papers so yep they have an influence without a doubt on how people see a movie right so that's definitely one of those uh, domino effect pieces just set in place locked and loaded um, the letterbox reviews were even meaner. <laughs> it was so good. Was really good. <laughs> Tell us some of these, Dan. Uh, how do I unwatch this? Um, <laughs> look, I'm no expert, but I'm pretty sure this film single-handedly caused climate change. Uh, this movie is objectively incorrect. Uh, this is one of my favorite. I hope everyone, every person responsible for this chokes on gingerbread cookies. <laughs> Um, this is a good one. This is a lengthy one, but I want to get this out because this is like a good sort of representation of what people actually think. Uh, one of the most poorly made films I've seen all year, uh, with proper composition, framing, and lighting, having left the building, which we've talked about. Mm-hmm. Uh, Disney's Home Sweet Home is a remake sequel hybrid that seems to pride itself on being the cheapest, dullest, laziest excuse for a comedy could possibly be, wasting its fantastic cast on dreadful material and spitting in the face of the original classic. And by extension, passing water over the grave of John Hughes in the process. <laughs> um, 
but that I think it, it goes back to what I mentioned at the beginning. Like there is um there's yeah, there's some hatred in these reviews. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't get where that's coming from. I don't I honestly don't understand why people are so pissed about it. Yeah. I mean, uh is it I cannot imagine even John Hughes, somebody that Definitely is an argument to be made that he had some kind of artistic integrity, but was essentially a populist, right? 100%. And, yeah. and he, he knew, right. He knew how the industry worked. He knew what was going to, he could, I mean, he was a hit maker for a reason, right? Yeah. yeah. So, like, uh, would he be disappointed? Maybe. Would he have understood how this came about? Absolutely. Right. Uh, yeah. It's, yes, cheap, dull, lazy. Absolutely. But once again, with what you're working with, especially, I mean, I am curious to, you know, play the what if game and think, okay, let's say they did, you know, manage to finish filming um, and the pandemic didn't happen. Could they have like seen that there was no way to get this figured out in the edit and gone back uh, and refilmed some stuff, reworked some plot points and actually put it together for a proper like Christmas theatrical release. I think so. I think once you get theatrical involved, you're talking at a minimum and it, okay, pandemic's changed a bit, but like domestically 50, 60 million dollars to but to market it alone. So mm-hmm. like if you're spending that type of cash to market, you better believe the final product on the screen has to be something. That's where you get more cooks in the kitchen. And we, we always say that that's a bad thing. Oh, you don't want the execs to get involved. But like executive producers exist for a reason. Yeah, right? yeah. They are the people that kind of understand how this stuff works on a holistic level. And they would see this and probably be like, absolutely not. Like, this does not work at all. Like, the daily, they look at the dailies every day and be like, what, what is going on here? Um, <laughs> yeah. But I think like, I don't know, they must have gotten in, like you mentioned, like they must have gotten in the can and said, whatever. It's yeah. Disney Plus. It's not real. It's um, <laughs> like these aren't real shows. Like this is all made up BS. Like, you'll just sh- you'll eat whatever we shovel down your throat because you're paying yeah. thir- thirteen bucks a month. Well, and to to, to make a, another comparison, this came up in conversation with our friends recently. Is um, Cruella right? Where it's yeah. um, a live action family film, but they really wanted to make sure that it was polished so that it would get that proper yeah. theatrical release oh, even during theatrical. COVID. Right, yeah, that movie pops. Like, and it's not fantastic. I enjoyed it, but like that movie pops. I haven't watched it yet, but like, do you think there's a similar like uh, inverse version of that happening? Where if it had, yes, right, it, I could easily see like a crappy, uh, you know, shoddily put together, hastily put together uh, origin story for Cruella Deville just like existing on Disney Plus rather than being like one of the most talked about family films of the year. Yeah, I mean, that, yeah, that's a good point. I mean, like, the, to be honest with you, the difference between those two is, like, night and day. Mm-hmm. Like, it's, like, unbelievable. I mean, Cruella costs a lot of money. Um, but, like, it, it is a big movie. It's a big theatrical movie. And this is, like, this is a Disney TV film. Yeah. That's all it is. Mm-hmm. And that's, like, you know, you can take it or leave it, but there's, like, no reason to, like, start a civil war over it. <laughs> that's why people are, like... <laughs> They're like so adamant about it, but it, you know, it is interesting. It kind of reminds me of a little bit of one, you know, something that we did over the summer, kind of a special thing we did. We did fear street, which was three movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those were shot to be released theatrically. Um, but pandemic happens. Same thing. Fox owned it. And essentially Disney t- 
took over and then Netflix is basically like, we're going to buy this from you because Disney doesn't want to put it out. Yeah. So Netflix buys it, puts it out. It, it, everybody watched that on streaming, but that felt, that felt, it didn't feel like pure cinema, but it felt like big enough where you're like, yeah, this is interesting. This has some heft to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and a little bit of a TV teen show to it. Right. But that added to like the campiness of but it almost. It it right. really worked. It, it hit whereas, that threshold. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's, yeah, it's an, it's a threshold. And I think, uh, home sweet home alone just doesn't really meet it at all. No. Um, and you think, you know, and I think people expected a big movie. Mm-hmm. They expected home alone six or a reboot of home alone. And they got, you know, it's like that Simpsons episode where they buy Sony instead of Sony. Um, <laughs> that, that's nice. Yeah. It's just one of those things. And we should mention that, you know, I think one of, the things people were wanting and maybe this plays into it uh, somewhat is like, you know, Macaulay Culkin has started having a higher profile. His brother's got a huge profile now um, who was also in the original film. Um, And then what we, what do we end up with for home sweet home alone? No Culkins, but at least we get the guy who played buzz. And that's just like, I think, a pretty good indicator of you know where the movie's at um yeah it's not even second run it's yeah. <laughs> now nope. here's a question for you is this low like for you young folks you don't know what we're talking about but straight to dvd was a term that was used for films that yep. get theatrical <laughs> and went to straight went to dvd uh released on dvd they usually had very poor quality would you put this and i would say tv movies are lower than that actually yes on some yes. level where would you put this well one? i mean i think it depends it, on it depends on yeah, yeah, yeah. Because at least TV movies can be nominated for Emmys. Yeah, um, <laughs> oh, <geez>. brutal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's uh, it's uh, of the bits and pieces I've seen of the two Home Alone films that were straight to DVD. Mm-hmm. Um, it's at least a cut above that. Um, but yeah, not, I would, yeah, yeah, not by much, but definitely like you know, at least they had there was the Disney machine behind it rather than like somebody looking for a tax write-off and you have that great special effect when he gets hit in the head with a pool ball (laughs) you can't get that in a straight dvd no no oh man do you want people to see this i would say here's what i'd say if you're a home alone fan uh and you kind of are interested just check it out you know yeah you can always turn it off yeah (laughs) exactly if you like i think it's more important if you like the cast you'll enjoy it because i thought it was pretty funny a lot of the spots and like you know there's some funny people in here Uh um but no it's not a good movie there's a pretty good set piece with the frozen driveway i think that's that was pretty well done yeah yeah yeah. that was really fun what Uh, do we got coming up next week dan we have our good friends in industry insider ryan uh who's gonna come and talk about i would say a pivotal dystopian film that's what i put in the copy here (laughs) i think that's probably right children of men uh from 2006 uh if you haven't seen it please watch it it was one of the i don't know i think biggest films of my young adulthood uh you know a big sort of anti i guess you call anti-war film iraq war too um <laughs> but uh yeah check it out it's on Tubi, and it is its 15th anniversary so we'll be talking about that next week on film trace <laughs> <laughs>